And you're listening to 83 Weeks with the one and only Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great. Uh, Mrs. B and I had a great weekend in uh, New York City. Some amazing food. Got to visit some with got to visit with some good friends, and overall had a great time. The weather was perfect. The city was great. Really enjoyed it. We should talk about the feedback we got from last week's show. I got overwhelmingly positive feedback from last week. What did you hear? Uh, same thing. You know, I, w- I was real busy this week and I didn't get to check in with social media as much as I normally do. But, uh, those comments that I saw were, were very positive and, you know, you and I both, you know, it's, it's funny. We've done these shows now for, you know, 70 or 75 weeks, whatever it's been. And we both know when we, when we kind of make contact and, and do a great show and it feels good for us. And, you know, we talked after we were done last week and we both agreed that was a, yeah, it was a pretty good show. And it was all, it's always great to hear the feedback from the audience when they agree. So it, it was fun. Fall brawl 96. What a great time to be a wrestling fan at the height of my fandom. So I really, really enjoyed that. And today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have Eric sit down and watch an episode of Monday night raw from September 22nd, 1997. So yesterday was the 22 year anniversary. That's a pretty monumental show. It's the first time that Monday night raw would come from Madison square garden. And, uh, we're going to encourage you to fire up your WWE network, uh, go over to raw and then select 1997. Look for that episode, September 22nd, 1997. And when you get it fired up, go ahead and press mute. If you want to throw on the closed captioning, by all means, we're going to be doing this watch along style, and you can even do this from your phone. Eric, I've got the, uh, the network set on my end. If you're ready, I'll count us in. And when I say play, we'll press play and we'll get this show on the road. Are you ready? I am ready. Well, all right, let's do it. Three, two, one play. The old, uh, 1997 signature. It looks very 1997. It does indeed. looks like, oh, here we go. Beautiful shot. Madison square garden and the Hulkster. Yeah. How about that? We're opening a WWF show by showing you the WCW champion. Of course, Jim Ross is doing a voiceover here, explaining the history behind Madison square garden. And, and all the great moments in professional wrestling. And of course he's saying that, you know, the world wrestling federation pioneered what is now sports entertainment and changed sports entertainment forever in this very building. Of course, they're talking about the war to settle the score and WrestleMania and all the great history there, but you're even seeing some older stuff here. I think in a minute we'll see, oh, there you go. Roddy Piper also with WCW Andre, the giant, obviously one of the biggest legends in company history and. The precursor to WrestleMania. Bruno. Yeah, so Bruno. Did you see the hair? Did you see the hair on Bruno San Martino? My God, I didn't know he ever had hair that long. And that right there is the uh, famous moment that made Mick Foley realize he wanted to be a wrestler. Superfly coming off the top, and that was a big moment in wrestling history. Big John Studd getting body slammed. Muhammad Ali, who we've also seen in WCW. Johnny be bad. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. It is uh, sort of interesting that they're showing so many of these WCW characters to open the show. And maybe they're doing that to show you that, you know, Hey, they're yesterday's news. They're, they're old news at this point, but 
Well, as we're getting ready to go to the present day, we see Sean coming off the top of a ladder at WrestleMania 10 and Brett, the prior survivor series, making a comeback. How about Pat Patterson there? Boot camp match, I think, with Sergeant Slaughter. These are always impressive. You know, one thing I will say, regardless of whatever the you know the messaging was behind it, nobody does these types of packages like WWE yep. has done and WWF has done. And you know, that was something that you know I acknowledged way back in the very beginning in WCW. There, the post production in wwf wwe from beginning to now has always been absolutely phenomenal we're getting a good look at it here now here's the uh the theme song from raw at the time now i can't hear that uh because i've got my my mute on but uh this was i believe in reaction to the nitro open that we did um, lots of fire and things like that yeah yeah very much so kind of following in our lead, so to speak. They did that a lot back then. A really cool open, really cool presentation and fans for years would wonder what are the fucking lyrics to that song? All we can hear is storm in my eye or whatever. And nobody really knew, but what we did know is Madison square garden is hosting raw for the very first time. And I think they're going to show the marquee a few times during the show to say that it sold out. That is in fact, not true surprise, uh, but still. Uh Really, really big moment to have this show at Madison Square Garden just because the cost of running MSG is so astronomical. Uh, you know, it, and you take it to another level when you say, not only are we going to run the garden, but we're going to put it on TV too, because now you've got to use, you know, a whole new set of union labor. So you can't use your typical crew members. Uh, I mean, you can, but you're going to pay union dudes to be there too. And so, your cost is just crazy. I don't know if you saw that sign in the front row, but there is a sign that says Eric Bischoff eats raw meat. <laughs> I did see that. That's interesting. But you're right on the business side of things. Uh, people don't realize that, you know, uh, when you put on an event in, in Madison Square Garden, and there's a couple of, of venues around the country that are like this, um, the, the, the costs are so incredibly high, probably, and I don't know this for a fact cause I don't budget for them, but I would imagine the, the cost, the expenses, uh, to put on an event in Madison square garden are probably two and a half to three times more than any other venue in the country. And it's one of the reasons why they don't do it more often. It's just unbelievably expensive but you get it back and you, know, you get a return on the investment in the sense that you know when you're coming from madison square garden it's a little bit it's like one of the reasons we came from las vegas and, and the mgm grand you're 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 basically putting a branding statement on your product that you're big time this is this is an important event and you're a big company when you can afford to come from Madison square garden, when you can afford to come from, you know, MGM grand, that's where important events happen. And, uh, that's one of the reasons why they don't do it more often. You see super fan Vladimir is front and center underneath the hard cam here. We get lots of questions about him. He, he would make his way to a lot of major wrestling events, WWF and WCW usually in the front row. And this show is no exception. So. The Rock is only 10 months into his WWE run here. He debuted 10 months prior to this in this same building at the Survivor Series. And of course, he was a white meat baby face, a blue chip prospect is what JR would call him. But 
10 months later here, he's now a bad guy with the nation of domination. what do you think of the nation of domination? You know, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, I was pretty busy doing my own thing at the time. You know, the little bit that I was made aware of it and I did check in on it, it was, uh, you know, it was edgy. It, it had a, it had a sharp edge to it, which was unusual for WWF at the time. Um, there's that sign again. God, I love that sign. Um, but I didn't. I didn't really give it a lot of thought. I didn't think too much of, of Dwayne Johnson at the time. Not that I didn't. I, I didn't think little of him. He just. He, he was a new kid on the block. He wasn't on my radar screen for sure. Probably as much as he was Jr.'s. But uh, obviously, he went on to become a fairly important star. Yeah, I think he did okay. Yeah, he's he's got no, he's got no problem paying the bills. That's for sure. This fella coming to the ring here, Ahmed Johnson, uh, Tony Norris, you actually uh, worked with him just for a cup of coffee in WCW, right? Yeah, it was a very short period of time. Uh, what was your very short? What was your interaction with him like? I know he was only there for a short period of time. It was minimal. Um, you know, he was uh, very uh, professional, you know, I guess. Uh, didn't stand out in any way. Didn't. Uh, didn't come in and try to set the house on fire, so to speak. But, uh, you know, it was very professional. I was told that, um, maybe one of the challenges he had with WCW was he couldn't keep his weight under control. When we, when we finally saw him again, uh, and he was called big T, he, it did feel like he had put on quite a bit of weight. Do you remember him struggling with his weight issues in WCW? Did y'all have a conversation about that? I never did have a conversation with him about it. Again, you know, it's not like I interacted with all of the talent on the roster, especially the newer talent coming in. So uh, I, I do remember he certainly didn't have the look in WCW that he had in WWF. But uh, no, I didn't have a conversation. I didn't tell him he was fat. Let's put it that way. I'm Ed Johnson and The Rock right here, man. Uh, boy, this is at the time. Ahmed Johnson was the bigger star of the two and, and who would have ever guessed this is where we would be and wandering around ringside, captain Lou Albano, Bruce Pritchard has often talked about how this guy was just a pain in Vince's ass, but he was a holdover from his dad's territory. So he felt like he had to take care of him and he always wanted to be on camera and do something. And Bruce would be tasked with, Hey, just take care of captain Lou. And on occasion times like this. Bruce would say, just fucking go out to ringside and just wander around. So he's down here pretending to take notes with no real payoff, but WWE Madison square garden, captain Lou has to be there. Let me ask you, Conrad, you, you, you're, you typically ask me the questions, but going back to 1997, do you remember this? Did you watch the show? I did. I watched both of the shows. What I would usually do is record one and watch the other. Uh, and I would flip back and forth, but I would watch one more intently. And I would always record the other. So I was in fact watching nitro on this night and I recorded this show, uh, but I would flip over whenever you guys went to commercial to see if they were in a commercial. What, what was your reaction to the rock early on in his career? I mean, did it, did, did he stand out to you? Did you see something that would suggest that 22 years later, he'd become the biggest movie star in the world or no. one of the biggest stars in WWE history? No, I, I thought he had a pineapple Willie haircut. And, uh, I was tired of them pushing him down our throats. When he became a bad guy, I got it a little more and I saw him at a house show. And, uh, I think August of 97, he had just, he hadn't been a heel very, very long. And I saw him, I think in August of 97 
And, um, there was something about the way he had just natural charisma with the crowd where I thought he could be something, but I, I thought maybe another intercontinental title run. I never imagined he would be a top guy in the WWF, much less at the box office. But I don't think a lot of people did. And, you know, a lot of people now go back and say, Oh, I always knew it, but I just find that hard to believe because at that point he hadn't been doing a ton of mic work and stuff. And maybe you knew, Oh, he has the, he has the pedigree of an entertainer and, and he played ball at Miami. So, and in fairness, I don't know how big of a football fan you were back then. He probably would have been a starter. had a guy named Warren Sapp not come along, but I mean, he's a all time hall of famer, you know, once in a lifetime athlete, nobody's going to play in front of Warren Sapp. So bad luck of the draw there. And he winds up on a really, really good team, but behind a once in a lifetime player and doesn't get the opportunity. And so what we just heard as they're doing a voiceover is Stone Cold Steve Austin's music playing. The crowd is really, really excited, but he's not coming out. He's in fact in the crowd. Does that remind you of somebody on WCW? Yeah, it's got a little bit of a DDP vibe going on. One of the people. I've always thought, man, when you when you put yourself out there with the crowd, first of all, the crowd's excited because they know they're on TV, so they're even more animated and more excited than may, than they might otherwise be. But you put somebody like Stone Cold Steve Austin out there, and you know you're gonna you're gonna start a riot in a good way. We should mention eight days prior to this show is when you guys had Fall Brawl '97, where we had the Horsemen taking on the NWO. And famously, Kurt would turn his back on the, on the horseman, slam Ric Flair's head in a cage and officially join the NWO. So on this show, September 22nd on nitro, you guys would have Ric Flair's robe with the sleeves cut off, uh, on Hulk Hogan. And how about this for a sponsored element? This is a laser tag commercial inside the show. That's still on WWE network with the ghost of Freddie Blassie talking to Special Agent Sable about laser tag with Howard Finkel. This is wacky. It's super wacky, but you know, if you wanted a real sponsorship, not just a, a spot in a stop set, but sort of an island spot inside programming, kudos to WWE for figuring out a way to make it work. Cause in 97, they're probably, you know, thirsty for sponsorships. And they made it happen for this modern version of fucking ninja throwing stars. Really? That I didn't even think of that, but it's true. But that is a really cool spot. And you're right. Sponsorships in program in programming sponsorships uh, are tough to come by. And sponsors love them. Anytime you could do something for a sponsor that feels really unique, even if they have. I was looking at the uh, chairman of the New York. Athletic commission there. Floyd Patterson, former. That's former really impressive. Champ. That's pretty cool, huh? That's impressive. But anytime you can uh, custom integrate a spot for a sponsor, they absolutely love that because it stands out from a typical commercial break or typical sponsorship, and it has a, be- a better impact on viewers. So nicely done. And of course, two days prior to this, they did a UK only pay per view called One Night Only. The British Bulldog dedicated his European title championship defense to his cancer-stricken sister. So, of course, Shawn Michaels beat him and took the belt. Interesting, isn't it, how that works? (laughs) R-A-S-S-L-I-N, that's wrestling. No, but there's a method to that madness. And, And I think that 
you know, anytime you can do the unexpected, um, you, you, you tend to get a better reaction from the crowd. You know, if, if you were to go out there and let the, the baby face get the win where everybody expects the baby face to get the win, you'll get a positive reaction, but you can also get more heat if you go the other way. And I think that might've been part of the equation. I don't know. Just guessing. Well, a ton of heat coming for Shawn Michaels and you see the trash raining in there at the end of the match. People were really ready for bulldog to win. Did you guys ever consider running like a UK only pay-per-view? That was a pretty regular thing for the WWF in this era, but WCW didn't really do that. No, you know, we thought about it and that was one of the challenges that WCW had is we didn't really have a strong international footprint. And one of the reasons why, as we've talked about in previous shows, why guys like, uh, Steven Regal and eventually, you know, British bulldog and, and others, uh, who had that really strong, um, international queue, particularly in the UK were important to our roster, but without the right promoter, which we did not have in place, uh, it was always challenging combined with the, uh, incremental, uh, costs associated with going overseas to produce a pay-per-view and then just the logistics of it. You know, we had to be on eight o'clock Eastern to 11 o'clock Eastern, you know, here in the U S and the time difference in the UK made that, you know, a challenge in and of itself. So there were just too many things that worked against us to be able to try to pull that off. We probably wanted to, I know I did, uh, any, any time that we could do anything that was, un, you know, different and out of the box and out of the ordinary, uh, it, it appealed to me, but we just logistically just didn't have the infrastructure to put it in place. And we see here, the undertaker making his way to the ring and he's going to be doing an interview with uh, Vince McMahon and in the background, we should mention that Paul bear has been threatening to give away a family secret. Um, of course the family secret is going to be revealed that, um, Paul bear was fucking his mom and, uh, then undertaker set the house on fire and everyone died. Uh, but his brother in fact, didn't die. He lived. We're talking about here, Eric, just to catch you up. Um, he was the world champ last month at um SummerSlam and he's wrestling Bret Hart with a stipulation that if he beats Bret Hart, uh, Bret Hart will no longer wrestle in the United States. And as far as the stakes on the Undertaker side, well he's the world champ. And they bring in a special guest referee, Shawn Michaels. And Shawn is in a in a blood feud with Bret Hart and Bret hocks a loogie on Shawn. Sean is annoyed by this. So he takes a chair and swings it as hard as he can at Brett. But of course, Brett ducks and he nails the undertaker instead. So Sean makes the count reluctantly. And now Brett is your world champion. So now the undertaker has an issue, not as much with Brett, but more with Sean because you've cost me the world title. So they had a match earlier this month in September called in your house ground zero. It's a bit of a schmoz finish, lots of interference. So now the solution is we're going to build a unique cell like structure, and we're going to call it hell in a cell, a new version of a cage match in the world wrestling federation. And it's happening one month from now. And the winner of that match, whether it's Shawn Michaels or the undertaker will wrestle Bret Hart at survivor series for the world title. 
I want to go back to the Ancestry.com spot that you just read off. Did you plan? I mean, did you think about that for four or five days? Or is that all improv? That was all improv. I got to go in order based on what Westwood gives us. And I saw Undertaker coming to the ring and I'm like, well, shit, this will work out. I'll tell you what. I like to think that the best part of our show is some of the insight and the backstory and the business of the business of the wrestling business that we get into from time to time. That's what I like to think. But I've got to tell you, some of your reads are absolutely the most entertaining <laughs> part of what we do. I don't know how you come up with this shit. I just don't. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It's crazy. Shawn Michaels makes his way out. I have to make note he does his sexy boy male stripper kind of entrance. I, I, you know, I like Shawn. We're, we're good friends. Great talent. Admire what he's done in the business. You know, he's achieved so much success on and on and on and on. Can't put him over enough. However, I've always hated his entrance. It's just, I, I don't know. I, I never really got why he got so over with that sexy boy kind of male stripper gimmick. But well, because he did. Chick, because chicks dug it. Yeah, well, when 75% of your audience is male, kind of. Well, but he's a heel. We're supposed to hate him. And that made you hate him. So we're checking boxes. All right. There you go. Yeah, here's the thing too. Here's what's great. He's saying, listen, everybody in this crowd knows one thing. I don't do any jobs. So you can put me in a cage with this big goof if you want to, but I'm not doing any jobs. Shooting a little straight here. The other thing that uh we didn't pick up on right away is uh seeing Vince McMahon in a jean jacket. Yeah, they're trying to be edgy, pal. Trying to be edgy. Wonder why. Well, hmm. because he couldn't wear a leather jacket. That would have been too close to you, right? That would have been too obvious, yeah. Uh, I, I would let Sonny put me over any day. Did you ever try to hire Sonny in this era? This feels like, uh, an Eric Bischoff special hire right here. Uh, Sonny actually did come to work for WCW. I don't remember what year it was. Uh, might've been 98 or so, uh, along with Chris Candido. Um, I think it was 99 was it, or 2000. It was, it was late though. It was two. It was later. Yeah. And it was, you know, unfortunately, I don't want to say anything um disrespectful about someone that is no longer here but it let's just we'll we'll leave it at it didn't go very well for a lot of bad reasons sunny had issues um we all know what they are and they were probably at their peak uh about the time that her and chris were in wcw road warriors here now called legion of doom of course on the wwe side of things not quite the uh, lod of the past but Still great entrance, great presentation. Uh, what a unique look who would have ever thought that, you know, the crazy haircuts, the face paint, the spikes on the shoulder pads. I mean, it became so iconic with them that, I mean, even today animal just has to throw on the face paint and the shoulder pads and, and it brings people back. It does. What an impression that they made. And, you know, I've talked about this, I think, before on this show, perhaps not. But there was a period of time in AWA when I was still with Vern. I think it was about 1988 or 89. I put together a video called Best of the 80s. And what I did was really just go back and look at the library as it was uh, in AWA and picked out some of the highlights, you know, going back to the early 80s. 
and I watched it in the AWA the evolution of the Road Warriors uh, over a period of probably about six or eight years, and just to really you know watch their impact firsthand, you know, from when they started in the AWA when they first arrived uh, till the you know end of their uh, run there was just fascinating. The impact that they had on the industry, particularly in the AWA, because Vern was very much a traditional guy. And the Road Warriors kind of went against the grain. They were that, you know, heel tag team that would go out and tell everybody they were going to kick your ass. And then they did, which was typically not a not the type of psychology that Vern would have embraced. But uh, because they were so powerful as characters and so successful as characters, they they went against that traditional kind of storytelling character building grain and did so well. But it was really it was a really fun study to to watch. Uh, you know, characters who were emerging at that time and literally over the course of probably the three weeks it took me to put that um, video package together or that videotape together, really study them and watch how they evolved over a relatively short period of time was really, it was an interesting lesson in, in, in the evolution of professional wrestling in the AWA. Right now we've got the uh, Legion of Doom taking on Kama Mustafa, who we know is going to go on to be the Godfather, and he's wrestling Farouk, who we uh, know is Ron Simmons. A lot of wrestling talent in there right now, my friend. A lot of badassery in that ring right now between Ron Simmons and Hawk and everybody else, you know, in that ring or on the ring ring apron at the time. But you talk about some shoot badassery. You're you're looking at it. <laughs> you're looking at it right here. I mean, if you walked into a bar and those guys were there, you got to know this is the safest bar in this zip code. It depends on you. It may or may not be for you, depending on your attitude and your disposition. But, you know, if you didn't stand out and piss them off, yeah, it'd be a pretty safe place to be. Good guys, though. And it's still fun. You know, I get to see Ron on the road occasionally. Uh, He's in WWE events from time to time. Classy guy. Of course, I got to know him pretty well in WCW and, and worked with him for a long time there. But still one of the classiest people that I know. Great guy to hang out with and Animal as well. Uh, still enjoy seeing Animal. And we sit down and, and tell these old war stories of back in the day and never ceases to uh, to crack me up and entertain me. I lo- love sitting down with these guys and cracking a beer. Speaking of sitting down with an old timer, we should mention that, uh, my new podcast with Arn Anderson starts this week. You can uh, find out more about it on Twitter at the Arn show. And well, we get the uh, episode or the uh, channel kicked off talking about his territory days on his way to signing with Jim Crockett promotions. So lots of old school talk. If you're into that sort of thing this week on the Arn show. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm not just saying that because you know, it's, it's one of your projects and, and one of our, I guess, network shows on the Conrad podcast network, but, uh, Arn, look, I'm really looking forward to this because I, I think if you're able to, and I believe if anybody can, you can Conrad, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass just because we're friends, but if you can pull Arn out of his shell and if Arn can be one tenth of as entertaining on his podcast as he is in person and interesting on his podcast as he in, is in person, and if you can get him to open up, I don't think there is a better storyteller, a funnier person, or more knowledgeable person in the podcast space, bar none. 
and I'm really, really looking forward to to hearing his show and, and what he has to say because I think I think you've got a sleeper on your hands in Arn Anderson. He may not be the highest profile name in sports entertainment when you look at some of the big names that have done podcasts, you know, recently. But I can't think of anybody I would rather carve out time to make sure that I listen to than Arn Anderson. So I'm good luck to you. Congratulations for putting it together and I can't wait to hear it. Oh, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And, and he's right here with us on uh, Westwood one. So I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll hear him talk about blue chew someday too. <laughs> oh God. I tuned in just for that. Oh my God. But the stories I'm telling you, I'm just so excited. I can't, you know, I don't want to spend two hours putting over Aaron Anderson, but my God, the stories that this guy is able to tell, you know, he was there front and center in the middle of it all. He is a walking, talking encyclopedia and one of the most entertaining people I've ever sat and listened to. So, again, can't wait to hear it. Oh, thank you, sir. Lots of uh, replays of Superfly Snooker in this show. Of course, we know that earlier in the summer of 97, we heard from the Mankind character, and he talked about how that match made him want to be a wrestler. He had to hitchhike to the garden to get there and. It was such a big night and he got to see Superfly fly off the cage, which was so innovative at the time. And we got Owen Hart coming out now. And he, of course, is a two-time Slammy Award winner. So he's going to remind that every time he comes to the ring. And he's surrounded by police officers because there is a protective custody order or a protective restraining order, temporary restraining order, whatever it is, uh, from Stone Cold Steve Austin, who keeps attacking him after he accidentally dropped Austin on his head at SummerSlam. And, uh, left Austin with a stinger and they had to go straight for the finish. And Austin has not wrestled since. And that was like August 3rd. So we're six or seven weeks in at this point and Austin still not back cleared to wrestle. So just in case Owen's ready and he's got uh, the police there to make sure they can keep him safe from the rattlesnake. Unfortunate incident with with Arn Anderson. Excuse me, with Arn Anderson, with uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin at the time. And as we know, that that injury pretty much uh, put an end to his his career. I, I mean, he did get involved a little bit. He, you know, subsequent to that, you know, physicality wise, but uh, it definitely it was never the cut, same. Yeah, yeah, it definitely cut his career short. I have the. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not putting myself over by saying this because my match with Steve Austin wasn't really a wrestling match. Uh, but I think officially, technically, by the letter of the wrestling law books, um, I might have been Stone Cold Steve Austin's last opponent. Well, you, you, put, can, you stomped a mud hole in him and walked it dry, if I remember right. Yeah, well, I'm glad you remember it that way. What a shot. Can you believe <laughs> they shot Marlena like that? Amazing, amazing! But you could get away with in 1997 that you can't get away with today. I mean, the upskirt shot of the thong as she bent through the ropes—it's like, whoa, that's crass, distasteful. Oh my gosh! But I'm politically you, so incorrect. I was 16 at the time, and it was the best part of Raw. You were 16 at the time. God, see when you put this kind of stuff in perspective, it just whacks me out. Conrad Thompson was 16, sitting at home in Huntsville, Alabama. Little would Conrad Thompson know that 22 years later, he'd be hosting podcasts with some of the <laughs> most influential names in the industry, yeah. making massive amounts of dinero. 
Yeah, who would have thought? Killing it in the podcast world. And who would have known about podcasts? Just think. It's just it's so fascinating, you know, looking at Brian Pillman here, which I'll I'll shut up here in a moment and let you talk, but it's so fascinating when we when we go back in time, we watch these events, in this case 22 years old, and you know, you're seeing people that you know, as we saw with Rocky, merged to be the biggest name in Hollywood and, you know, Pillman who passed away. And, you know, you, you look at the history of these people over the past 22 years. But and then think about, you know, here I am sitting here in Stanford, Connecticut, working for the WWE. I was just at the the, the um, event in the SmackDown event in uh, Madison Square Garden. What is it? Two weeks ago, almost. Um, it's just life is so amazing when you look at it in retrospect like this. It really is. And of course, Brian Pillman is in the middle of a uh, blood feud here with gold dust. And, uh, because he won his match at in your house, ground zero, he now has the services of Marlena for 30 days. And he's telling the crowd that recently while Dustin was reading three little pigs to their daughter, Marlena, he had, uh, Dakota's mom squealing like a pig. And as he bent her over wow. for one last position, he slipped and fell in the bathtub and broke his arm. So he can't compete in this intercontinental tournament tonight. So he won't be wrestling his stable mate, Owen Hart for the intercontinental title. And the commissioner, Sergeant Slaughter, having none of it and says, well, let me see the x-rays. Where are they? And he says, oh, they're in my, they're in my car. And he says, well, where's your doctor's excuse? Well, it's in the hotel. And now he says, think fast. And of course, Pillman catches it with the bad arm. He's caught. Uh, he must wrestle or he's fired from the world wrestling federation. So he's going to wind up wrestling Owen Hart either way. Sergeant's crafty. Never underestimate Sergeant slaughter. He's a crafty dude. Thinks on his feet. We, uh, Brian, Brian Pillman was in great. This, where would you put Brian Pillman at this stage in his career? Would you would you think that would you say that Brian Pillman may have been at his peak as a performer at this point? Uh, it's weird to watch it right here, just because you know as we're watching this, this is live on October twenty second, September ninety seven, and in like thirteen days, he's dead. Wow. Wow. I see. Oh, wow. I just kind of took the wind out of me there. It's again, when you look at these things in, in retrospect and hindsight, whatever you want to call it, it's just, it's fascinating. The stories that have evolved out of the, the last 20 or 25 years, just mind boggling sometimes. Brian Pillman, yeah, you wouldn't have guessed it. You know, you look at him here. Now, I don't know what he was like backstage. I don't know what he was like when he was away from the arena or away from the business. But, you know, just looking at him, you would have never guessed that he had the problems that clearly he had with drugs. It's pretty crazy to think that this is, you know, where we are. I think, uh, I think this may have been his last match on TV. Yeah, I was going to ask you if this if this was you know if he, if he passed away thirteen days later did he pass away in Minneapolis? Yeah, it was, it, was right, it was right before uh, their pay per view, which they're building towards in your house. Bad blood. He was supposed to have another match with Goldust there, uh, and then if he won, uh, if Goldust won, he was going to renew his vows with Marlena the next day on Raw, and of course we know we never got the payoff of that. So I think that the next week they, we would see Pillman on the show, but it would be like, um, what it was a, a filmed vignette 
and Pillman was doing a series called uh, Brian Pillman's Triple X Files, and it had him and Marlena in bed. So this was probably not Brian Pillman's last match, uh, but pros- quite possibly his last televised match. That's right, yeah, because he wrestled uh, he, the night before he died or the night he died, depending on what time of day it was. But he he did have a match uh, the night before the pay-per-view, and then they had to announce on the pay-per-view that he was no more. Here's another sponsored element, though, something we really enjoy talking about here on the show. Stridex now has a pay-per-view calendar inside every box, and uh, those pay-per-views are listed on the back of a little collectible trading card. And there's six different trading cards from six top superstars. And and this was kind of rare. They actually had action during the break and they have to catch us up when we come back these days on TV. Uh, it's a little formulaic. You can tell, oh, well, somebody's going to the outside, they're going to commercial. And then when they come back, they're going to finish their rest holds and then get to business. But we had real action here during the break, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's not always the case on SmackDown. We do picture within a picture during some oh, yeah, of the commercial breaks. So you you do get at least on SmackDown an opportunity to keep up with the action in the ring. That's pretty cool. That I mean, I know that's uh, that predates EB being there, but that feels like something you would have uh, championed because it does. Here's the thing: it gets fans to stick around and watch the commercials, which is what you want. Like as an advertiser. What you hate to hear is what some of our listeners tweet. Well, I always fast forward the commercials. Uh, please don't tweet that. Uh, we want you to listen to the commercials. That's why the show is here. But, uh, if you're advertising and you can be inside the show as an advertiser, who's buys media, I can tell you that's where you want to be inside the show. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'd love to talk to, you know, an advertiser or an agency that represents one about how they feel about that. And I'm sure it's kind of a, uh, I'm sure there's two schools of thought, you know, one school perhaps might be that an advertiser doesn't want to share the screen and share the attention with programming because they may feel, may feel as though they're not making as much of an impression on a potential viewer or customer. On the other hand, as you pointed out, uh, there are probably is a school of thought that says, hey, at least nobody's fast forwarding through the commercial and they're watching it. And it's there in front of them while they're watching the action. I would think, you know, I would fall into the second school of thought. Um, I think anything that you can do uh, to be a part of programming, the better, even if you're sharing a screen with it. But I'd be interested to know that and, and speak to an avatar. I may try to seek one out at some point and, and hear the different uh theories on that but i I, th- I think it's a cool technique personally I, if it was up to me they'd all have picture within a picture yeah i really dig it and there you see brian pillman's match being interrupted by dustin rhodes of course it's gold dust but he's not wearing the face paint so they're trying to you know play off the real life aspect and of course there's owen hart taking credit it's a hard-fought victory i'm in the finals I want to dedicate this to my brother, Brett, all about the heart foundation in this era, the sort of anti-American pro Canadian fun stuff. I think it's the best work that Brett did in his entire career. You can go back and enjoy any of those vignettes or promos and from the back, there it is. You knew it was coming eventually. Look at the crowd go nuts. A stone cold attacks Owen Hart and man, the police are all over him. They're ready. But watch what's coming here. This is the big moment. They promised as the show, look at the flashbulbs going. They promised as the show started 
Jim Ross did, that you were going to see the defining moment moment in WWF history here tonight when Raw finally emanates from Madison Square Garden. Oh, this is interesting. Vince McMahon in cargo pants and a jean jacket, not something you thought you'd ever see. No, not something I'd ever see. And I, I think what's even more interesting here is, and I'm not sure about the timeline here and where we are in 1997, but you know, for so long, Vince McMahon never acknowledged that he was in fact the, the CEO, the owner, the chairman, whatever his title was of, of, of WWF. You know, he was, he, he, he was an announcer. He never took that, uh, authority role until, Sometime in 1997, it might have been here, might have been before this. I'm not sure, but clearly we're seeing a, a different Vince McMahon character now, and he's fully embracing the fact that he is indeed the owner of WWF, which is just just making a note here. Pretty interesting. Jr. is going to note that on the commentary here as they're explaining. He's explaining what's going on that you know he is the uh, owner or chairman or whatever he calls him of the world wrestling federation. And of course, Lawler is saying, arrest him, arrest him. And Vince is trying to explain, listen, you're going to hurt yourself. You're only banned from hitting Owen and attacking Owen because we don't want you to hurt yourself. Your doctors say you can't compete. You can't hurt yourself further. We don't want to see you in a wheelchair out here. These fans don't want to see you in a wheelchair. You've got to play within the system. So McMahon is trying to be sort of the voice of reason and essentially daddy him about this isn't good for you. That's all. We just want to help. We're not going to let you get out here and hurt yourself. And I don't think by the look of Steve Austin's face, he's buying that whatsoever. And I love this because they're building the tension. They're just, they know what they're doing here, obviously. And there's such great psychology and storytelling here. The audience they may not even know what's going to happen, but they know something is going to happen and they're milking it and milking it. They're building up to that moment when that, that flashpoint occurs and you're going to get an amazing reaction. I just, I love this kind of thing. And you know, this reminds me of, of some focus groups that I had done, you know, when we were getting ready to launch nitro. And one of the things that we, we learned out of those focus groups from all over the country was that the audience, as much as they love action, they love that buildup to that moment right before the action occur, occurs. And I liken it sometimes to, you know, watching an old Western where the two gunfighters get out in the middle of the street at high noon or the you know middle of town at high noon and you have that dramatic music and you've got that slow motion shot and they're each got their hands by their pistols and you know you're waiting to see which one is going to draw first that those types of moments and that build up and that anticipation is one of the things that audiences really love about this product it's not always the action for action's sake, it's the buildup in the story and the anticipation leading up to it. And I think we're probably getting a good look at that here. I can't hear the commentary, obviously. I'm not looking at subtitles, but I'm guessing what we're seeing here is a build making the audience want to see something explode. Well, I think they're going to get it. Um, Austin saying, you know what? Uh, I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to work within the system. Um, it's hard for me to do cause I'm sitting at home and I can appreciate the fact that you care, but I also can appreciate the fact that, 
You can kiss my ass. There we go. Boom. And the crowd goes wild. What a great moment. Austin taunting him afterwards is way better than the actual stunner because Vince took what is still to this day, one of the worst stunners ever. I think the worst stunner ever actually belongs to Vince's wife, Linda, but she gets a pass, but Vince not only took it shittily and rolled over, uh, Austin, which was kind of fun, but then he started to shake a little, almost as if, you know, he took, uh, he took the, the name literally that it's supposed to be like a stun gun or something. And he's been electrocuted and he's shaking and it's just hilarious. Yeah. There's always these moments, you know, when we all look back at our careers and we see them on tape, you know, and there are always moments, I think probably for everybody, no matter who you are, no matter how successful you've been in your career, there's always those moments when you go back and you see yourself on tape and go, God damn, I wish I could have that one back. And that may, (laughs) that may have been the case with Vince McMahon. I'm sure when he goes back and he sees himself in cargo pants and a jean jacket, He'd like to have that back. Just saying. What a cool <laughs> it's moment. Odd, it's odd for me to see him in that. It's just, it really is. This is before everyone was getting arrested on TV every other week. So this was a major moment to see a star like this arrested on TV and carried up the ramp. And of course he's jaw jacking on camera the whole time. Really big moment. And, uh, they're acknowledging the passing of bulldog Brower. Which sucks. And now it's time to start the second show. Uh, famously, Raw was split into two shows. Um, Raw is war in the war zone. Uh, and that gave them sort of two shows to claim that they were in the top 10. You get the second opening again. And yeah, I got to ask you, you know, there's been a lot of feedback. I don't know that you've seen on social since you've been so busy, but lots of people are having fun with the fact that you said that you're, uh, too perfect to be real. I think is the phrase. Is that right? No, my hair's too perfect to be real. I'm not too perfect. I got flaws like crazy. I'm the least perfect person, you know, but my hair fucking hair is awesome. The lady you're referencing is Rhonda Shear. Rhonda Shear. Yeah. Who's Ron? Who's Rhonda Shear? She did some, uh, television. She was in playboy, but the thing she was doing for USA at the time was called USA up all night. And, uh, you know, she sold some shit on HSN and stuff like that. She was like miss Louisiana back in your day, like 75 or something like that. Back in my day. Well, she, uh, the, the headlights were on, so to speak. Well, yeah. She probably knew she was on camera and got the gimmicks going. Oh, there she is again. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of old Rhonda Shear. You can see more of her in your Google machine if you'd like. She was yeah. in, she was in lots of stuff. She did a uh, WrestleMania 10 guest, keep, uh, guest timekeeper spot, and she was on Stern back in the day, and I think she did Duckman and lots of weird stuff. But then some more mainstream stuff, Entertainment Tonight, Larry King Live, Married with Children, Alan Thick Show, Dukes of Hazard. Well, she's a legitimate star. Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. Dukes of Hazard was before this. Yeah, but but she did it though. She did the Fall Guy too back in '83 and Heart to Heart, and she was on Carson. I mean, she's like she's like real old. She's like your age. 
God damn, Conrad. Well, no, Lighten well, up. Lighten up. I'm not real old. I'm well, no, older, you look, you look but I'm not real young. old. You look 10 years younger, motherfucker. I look 10 years younger this morning after that blue chew. <laughs> I'm kidding. She's way older than you. She's six months older than you, bro. Oh, you're cold. You're a cold man. November 12th, 1954. Tell Rhonda I wonder what she's doing now. Probably wheeling herself around the old folks' home. I think she's still uh, doing stuff uh, like on like um, the shopping network or whatever. Well, good for her. Good for her. She's got longevity. Interesting to see Triple H here, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's so funny. Like you know, I see you know Triple H now in the hallways, you know, a couple times a day, and he look. We all look so much different, but it's so fascinating to go back and and see these characters back then, and 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 not only do they look so much different, but to see their career paths and the trajectory of what they become and 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 where they've ended up in the industry is just fascinating. This is a, a big moment here that we're seeing too, because Dude Love is the persona that mankind changed into to battle with triple H at the end of his SummerSlam match. And they had a rematch at the pay-per-view a few weeks prior. And, um, so now mankind has, has been able to show off this other side of his personality dude love, but right now he's supposed to be in the ring, having a false count anywhere match where anything goes with triple H and dude love says, that's not really my kind of match, baby, but I know just the guy and he brings out mankind and mankind's going to say, well, that's not really my kind of match either. Like I don't have a, that's not one of my specialties. It's the specialty of somebody else. And this is how they're going to debut for the very first time. The cactus Jack character on Monday night raw up to this point, cactus Jack has never been in the WWF. He's always been mankind and now very briefly dude love, but this is going to be the final chapter of the three faces of Foley. And it's pretty innovative the way they do it, where dude love is interviewing mankind and then mankind throws to cactus shack and the crowd goes bananas and starts chanting of all things, ECW. When of course, most of these fans were familiar with cactus Jack first from WCW, but whatever. Paul Heyman stole cactus Jack for me, stole him. God, we, we, WCW got, I didn't get Cactus Jack over. He was over before I got there, but WCW would get these talent. The guys like Cactus Jack became a household name, national television known around the world. And Paul Heyman stole them, stole them. It is funny when you really think about it because Owen Hart was in WCW. Steve Austin was in WCW. Hunter Hearst Helmsley was in WCW. Mick Foley was in WCW. Ron Simmons was in WCW. Like you just go through this Dustin gold dust, Brian Pillman, Marlene on and on. So many of these characters that we're, we're seeing on this show here used to be with world championship wrestling. True. And now I'm going to play the other side of that, which is going to be ironic for those of you who are listening. And of course, I'm sure many people are just going to say, I'm only saying this because I'm now working for the WWE. But the difference is, while they have may, may have been, the aforementioned talent may have been in WCW, the platform that WWF, then WWF, now WWE provided them allowed them to become much bigger stars. And that's, you know, therein lies the difference. In some respects, you could almost suggest, God, it almost hurts me. My, my 
it almost hurts me to say this, but you could almost suggest that WCW was a developmental territory, like a lot of other territories were, you know, including Mid-South and at some point AWA and in other territories where some of the big names that came through went on to WWF and WWF and became big stars. But yeah, whenever I... Yeah, I always I, I I can't help but take a shot at Heyman. I love the guy. I love working with him. We have a blast working together. But anytime I get an opportunity to point out that indeed some of the fact some of the people that showed up on ECW were bigger stars in WCW than they ever were in ECW, I have to take that shot. I just do. I I got to tell you, I, I've recently come to this realization. I told this to Bruce. Uh, this past week, but I think in the last three or four years, the way I sort of view the performers in wrestling has changed a little bit and I've grown a new appreciation for guys who really did it all. And they've, they've creeped into my top 10 list or maybe they wouldn't have been there before. And, And the reason I bring this up is because Mick Foley, who I've always enjoyed his stuff. I just never really would have said. Oh, he's one of my absolute favorites. He's in that list now. And I think it's because I enjoyed the cactus Jack stuff in WCW so much. And then I enjoyed the crazy deathmatch stuff in Japan as cactus Jack, but then he comes in and really reinvents himself with mankind and has separate entrance music and exit music and has a crazy character and he's rocking back and forth and he's doing his interviews totally differently. And. Then he did the dude love thing. And then the cactus Jack thing again, that we're seeing here, but then he would just be Mick Foley and would get over a different side of his character with the Mr. Socko gimmick. I mean, he got a sock puppet over and then he would become a commissioner and was arguably one of the more entertaining commissioners that they ever had. And, but oh, let's not forget. He also wrote a bunch of books that were, and not with ghostwriters, but with his own hand and pen and paper and they were all great and bestsellers and just the innovations and and his ability not just in the ring but with promos and his charitable work and the books and he did commentary and commissioner he's a top 10 all-time player and i don't think that i really put all of that together on one resume for him in my mind until the last two or three years i agree with you and you know, much like – I'm not drawing too much of a comparison here, but one of the reasons that I think so highly of Chris Jericho um, today – I, in fact, I have more respect for Chris today than I did 15 or 20 years ago. Not that I liked him anymore or less, but as a character in terms of his work and what he's been able to achieve, one of the reasons I'm such a fan of Chris Jericho is the fact that he's been able to reinvent himself as many times as he has and has always been able to kind of stay at the upper echelon of – what's important in the industry, no matter where he's at and where he goes and what he does. That's a unique talent. And for a guy like Mick Foley, who I think is probably should go down as, as the master of reinvention, as you pointed out, he, you know, he reinvented that character three, four, five times, and then has gone on to reinvent himself again as a legend in the industry by being involved in so many great causes and putting himself out there in speaking engagements and, and reaching out and touching people that, that, um, that contact with a guy like Mick Foley can sometimes change their lives for the better. You can't help but look at those people like Mick Foley uh, in admiration and the body of work that they've done over the past 20, 25 years. And, you know, add on top of that, in Mick's case, just 
you know, we always talk about, people always talk about uh, what they put their bodies through. You know, Mick Foley wasn't a jacked up, you know, triathlete type of, you know, character, athlete. You know, he was a big, heavy guy. He didn't spend a lot of time in the gym. But as big as he was and as, at least on the surface, unathletic as people may have thought he was, he was an incredibly athletic person that gave 110% in the ring and sacrificed his health and his well-being. Uh, at the time, I'm probably, I'm guessing, Mick and I have never talked about that, but I'm sure it wasn't high on his list of things to consider. But 22 years later, I think if you look back and, and look at the things that Mick put his body through and the sacrifices he made to get his character over and to make the product better, I don't think there's anybody out there that has you know, done more and given more than Mick Foley has. One of my favorite people in the industry, no doubt. It's having a hell of a match here. False count anywhere with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. I do want to mention something that we haven't talked about because I wanted to save it for the right time, but I guess now's just as good a time as any. This is the episode of Monday Night Raw where before they go live, before they're on camera, Vince McMahon has to have a private meeting with Bret Hart and give him some bad news. The news essentially is I can't honor your contract. And Brett would write to this meeting with Vince saying that Vince said, I have no problem. If you want to see if WCW will make you the, the same deal as before, I hear Hogan is finishing up there soon. Your timing couldn't be more perfect. And Vince then told Brett, if he left, he'd actually be doing Vince a favor because he's about to downsize to become a Northeastern United States promotion. And he told Brett that because of his 14 years of loyal service, he wanted to give Brett the opportunity to approach WCW before everyone else did, since he'd be letting a lot of other wrestlers go. And of course we know that, you know, things are going to start moving fairly quickly and you guys are going to have a conversation, but in this conversation, it almost feels like Vince is waving the white flag. Like, Hey, I'm not going to be a, a, a internationally touring brand anymore. I'm going to run a handful of States in the Northeast. And let a lot of this overhead and these folks go, go see if you can get your deal back. When did you first hear from Brett again? Oh God, I don't remember Conrad. You know, we've talked about the, the, the Brett Hart, um, story, you know, one of the first podcasts that we did. And, uh, I honestly, I can't remember the date and, and where we were in our timeline in terms of when I heard from Brett, uh, interesting to note though, um, that in that conversation. Now I, I clearly, I wasn't a part of it. Uh, but that Vince uh, allegedly said that, you know, he had it on a good authority that Hulk Hogan would be finishing up in WCW. Not sure where that came from. Clearly it could have been Hulk, you know, suggesting to Vince that he, he may be ready to leave to entertain a better proposition from Vince McMahon. I could certainly believe that, but on my end, there was certainly no conversations at all about Hulk Hogan leaving WCW. So that's an interesting, interesting note. Just so you know, um, Bruce and I have talked extensively about how Hogan had a meal with, with Vince and wanted to make sure there was an audience. I mean, it was in public. It wasn't in a hotel room. It was at a restaurant where word would get back and Vince sort of 
assumed that he wanted to do that just so word would get back to you and he could use his meeting as leverage to get a better deal. Uh, but they did sort of freestyle. What if, you know, what if Brett left and what if that meant we could afford to make a deal to bring Hulk over because tries, we might, we're not winning the ratings war here. They're beating us sometimes by twice as much. How about this for a spot too? a wooden table from tables are us pile driver through there's the finish cactus jack wins the false count anywhere match with a pile driver through a table on the top of the ramp man that was something else going back to the hogan uh, mcmahon meeting now I, I i'd have to go back and look at notes from previous shows but if that was the meeting i think it was that meeting took place in denver colorado while we were in denver for nitro hulk gave me a heads up that he was going to be meeting with vince and assured me that nothing would come of that that he was just going to take the meeting so if that again that may have been a separate meeting it could have been a different you know time frame i'm not really sure uh, it all kind of runs together here but um if there was a meeting and it was in public it was probably the one in denver where where Hulk let me know he was going to take it and also let me know he had no intentions of going anywhere. So there you go. The timeline checks out. Uh, you guys ran Denver on August 11th, 1997. This is September 22nd. So that makes sense. There you go. Well, it's, it's a fascinating moment because you know, this show, it's just weird to sort of look at all of this stuff in a vacuum in hindsight now, because we know that things are going to start moving very quickly and you guys are going to put together a deal for Bret Hart to come to WCW. We are what, uh, six weeks from the screw, the Montreal screw job. And then, you know, just a, a month after that, Brett's going to show up on WCW programming, maybe a little longer than that, but not much longer. Uh, but at the same time where this major moment in history is happening, Steve Austin can't wrestle because of this, uh, errant pile driver from Owen Hart at SummerSlam. So they're trying to come up with a way to keep him on TV and keep his heat going and keep this momentum building for his character. So he stuns Vince McMahon the very first time that, uh, raw is in Madison square garden. Not only does he stun Vince McMahon, but it's revealed that he's the owner. And then he is subsequently arrested on, at the exact same time on the other channel. Hugh Morris is losing a match to a debuting Bill Goldberg. Wow. Pivot points. Interesting moments. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? To look back and especially because we were going head to head and you can compare those moments and what was going on in WCW on Nitro and what was happening in WWF. I mean, it's, it's just such a fascinating period of time. So many things developed, evolved, began and, and, that has changed this industry forever. And we're still seeing the effects of it today, 22, 23, 24 years later. It's just, you know, to this day, you see, so boy, that was a horrible, horrible stunning <laughs> events for fuck's sake. Come on. <laughs> I love it. Uh, uh, come on. If he was sitting here, even he'd have to have a laugh at that. Oh, of course he would. But, um, 
again, this is so, so, and I guess it's a testimony to why this show and shows like it, why Tony's show, why I think Arne Anderson's show is going to become so successful, is looking back at the history of, of this industry, I think is so fascinating because it's evolved so much over the last 20 years. And in this era in particular, from probably the mid-90s to early 2000s, probably the sports entertainment industry underwent its most significant change in such a short period of time. It almost feels now looking back like it happened overnight. It certainly didn't. And at the time we didn't, it didn't feel that way because it was happening in real time. But looking back at it now, as we go back and look at these shows and kind of look, look at everything that took place, you know, in retrospect over that 10 year period. Um, but man, it, it so many things changed. It's just fascinating. It's not like other, you know, if you watch, you know, major league, you know, sports or major league baseball, or you watch the NFL, we're all used to rule changes and, you know, the athletes have gotten, you know, better and the, the rules have changed and television has had its impact on these sports over the course of 15 or 20 or 25 years. The changes seem to happen more slowly in other major league sports and forms of entertainment. Whereas in, in our industry, so many of those changes occurred in such a very short period of time that it makes it really interesting to go back and study. It really does. And, um, you know, that's why shows like this are so fun. We appreciate you guys listening and Sean Michaels here comes to the ring, strips his shirt off. The crowd goes wild. He sits in the chair he brought to the ring. He props up the European title and, uh, he's saying he's not going anywhere. He's calling out the undertaker and, uh, it, it, we're just days away from the hell in a cell and notice there's some fans who are chanting. Sean is gay and he can't wait to, uh, address that. He says, Oh, Sean's gay. Ask your mama if I'm gay. And, uh, he's trying to get the heat doing a good job. Yeah. The crowds, uh, here's the deal. They want to cheer Shawn Michaels because he's had so many tremendous performers and he is such a great in-ring performer, but, uh, he's, he makes it so easy to hate him too. Doesn't he? Well, I kind of hate him because his hair was so good. I mean, I, in 1997, I was under the impression that I indeed had the best hair in sports entertainment, but clearly Going back and looking at, you know, Monday Night Raw from this era, I would have to suggest that perhaps, just perhaps, Shawn Michaels did indeed have better hair than I did, and that half pisses me off. He's giving you a run for your money, at least. No doubt about it. Speaking of good hair, here comes The Undertaker. Two characters here, you know, we talked about, oh, damn it, it was a trap. That damn Hunter Hearst Helmsley. These guys are a couple of degenerates. And there's Ravishing Rick Rude and China. Of course, we know that's going to become what we call Degeneration X. But what's so fascinating? Again, there's another guy, Rick Rude, former WCW performer, now in the WWF, and you see them jawjacking with the crowd. But The Undertaker, also a WCW guy, but never with you. And sort of the same thing with Shawn Michaels, never had a WCW run. Did you ever get past the talking stage with either one of these guys? I never got into the talking stage with either one of them. Never had a, a, a syllable uh, of conversation with either one of them. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. Sean, not so much. You know, I knew 
<clears throat> Sean had a history. Sean had a reputation. Um, I, I think he will admit, Sean will admit, that um, he was not the easiest person to be in business with back during this period. And I knew that very well. And by this point, you know, Scott and Kevin were both, um, you know, to say a handful would be an understatement. I had no, number one, I didn't need him. Uh, we were top talent heavy uh, by 97 and 98. So there was no real need to bring in somebody at, um, at Sean's level, especially with Bret Hart, you know, coming uh, in the near future. And even if we did need somebody, uh, bringing in somebody with, with Shawn Michaels history back at this point was not something I was interested in doing. The Undertaker I just knew, uh, well, I didn't know, I should say. I had heard and respected the fact that he was extremely loyal to Vince and there would be no way he would even entertain, you know, coming to WCW. So I just, I, I never made the effort to even try to reach out to him. Huh. And what's really interesting, I think now, you know, when I see uh, Undertaker, in, you know, I saw him, we were together in the UK uh, several months ago before I came to, to WWE. We hung out together and it's, you know, we don't have any history, but we get along almost like we did or we do. Um, I think that I just have so much respect for the guy for not only for what he's accomplished over the years, but he was one of the guys that never reached out to me, never had an agent or um, a, a, a surrogate, so to speak, reach out to me on his behalf. He he was loyal to WWE or WWF at the time, and you know he he stayed loyal and never reached out to try to improve his position financially. And I you know I got to respect a guy like that, and I enjoy his company to this day. I don't spend a lot of time with him, but the little bit of time that I do. He's one of the one of the guys that I really like to to hang out with and just hear stories from. Bret Hart, of course, is your world champion. He's going to cut a promo here saying he's not scared of the Undertaker. He never has been. And Sean, I'm uh, I'm not done with you. Not after what you just did to the British Bulldog two days ago. So he's setting the stage for whoever wins Hell in a Cell. He'll be ready for him at Survivor Series. And they would do a dark match that they promoted here locally to sell tickets. That's going to be a three-way with the undertaker, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. So your TV main event is gold dust. But once they go off the air, uh, Bret Hart will wrestle one more time. Shawn Michaels, the undertaker in a three-way. Gold dust doing a little bit of a different look here. Of course, he's got this new edge where he's fighting for his wife. Who's now, uh, with Brian Pillman for 30 days. What an interesting character. You know, we've never really dissected the the character of Goldust, but I mean, that's, that's a show all by itself. I would love to, to sit down with Dustin Reynolds someday and just talk about this character because it's man. So unique. I mean, he's got the, what does he get? The, the hammer and sickle. Painted on half of his face. I mean, what's that about? I don't know. I don't think he did it ever again. I think it was a one-time deal here. You know, he's, you know, they did a series of interviews over the summer with, with him talking about his relationship with his dad. And, you know, they had his wife, quote unquote, Marlena with him at the time. And they were talking about their daughter. And I mean, they really gave you a peek behind the curtain at the man behind the character and Talked about some real life stuff and situations. 
And then fresh off of that, of course, turned it into an angle and put him with Brian Pillman and they, or put her with Brian Pillman. And they revealed that, you know, she had a history that before she met Dustin in WCW, uh, she used to date Brian Pillman and Goldust has written in, in the years past that he was uncomfortable with that angle because that was all real that they dated before he dated her and he didn't like this, but it was the creative and that's what he was asked to do. So he did it. And I got to tell you as a wrestling fan though, that's the stuff that we look for. We look the stuff, we look for stuff that's like, okay, well, we know this is all showbiz, but that that's real. They really don't like each other because X, Y, Z. Yeah. And I mean, how awkward, I mean, if you can put yourself in that position, how awkward would that be? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's life, it's real life. And we've all been in situations, you know, I guess, similar to that in nature. And can you imagine putting it all out in front, uh, in the middle of the ring and the storyline so that the world knows your personal history and, and the awkwardness of it. It's just, and of course you have to turn the volume volume up on the awkwardness of it and the dichotomy of it in order to make it interesting, which makes it even more uncomfortable than it already would be. So it's, it, it really is. But what I would really like to know from, from Dustin is the evolution of this gold dust character, because it's kind of an, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you'd even describe the the Goldust character. It's kind of androgynous, pal. It's androgynous, and, and now you've got an androgynous character who's reacting to his wife being with another character, and I don't know. It's just so much bizarreness. I would love to sit down and try to understand who came up with it, why they came up with it, what the psychology was for it, or is it? Just something that, you know, they really love the Goldust character and the androgyny of it all, and the rest of it just kind of followed. Was there a rhyme or a reason behind it, or did it just evolve on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis? So I'd really be interested to hear that. I'll send you a link. Uh, Bruce and I did like a 17-hour episode on it. (laughs) I can't wait. Yeah, and now with the amount of free time you have, you should finish it around 2022. Yeah, can you summarize it? <laughs> yes, yes, almost... Can you hit, can you hit me with some bullet points, brother? Absolutely, I'll make that happen. You see, uh, Brent Hart here working over Gold Dust. I got to tell you, these um, these are two top stars in wrestling history. But man, they got to be disappointed when the ratings come in. Raw only did a two point three three. It did a two point three five for the first hour, and it actually got worse in the second hour. A two point three. Just a 3.49 share. Nitro is going to go off the air early, uh, 10, 16 Eastern time. I assume that's, uh, because, uh, basketball's heating up and the raw audience shows no growth. So really think about that. There's 2.6 million homes watching Nitro. And when Nitro goes off the air, statistically, none of them switch over to USA. Uh, this is not good news for the world wrestling federation. So raw does a 2.33. Nitro does a 3.69. Uh, the only head to head segments, there were only five, uh, but those head to head segments had nitro averaging 3.58 to Raw's 2.33. So huge difference. And this is still with nitro doing a replay at, at like 1.6. So even though it's, uh, a big monumental show for the WWF, them being in Madison square garden and cactus Jack debuting and stone cold, Steve Austin, giving a stunner to Vince McMahon, man, you guys just having Hulk Hogan do a promo in a sleeveless Ric Flair robe 
and Goldust, not Goldust, rather Goldberg debuting with no hype, no fuss, no sizzle and destroying Hugh Morris. That was enough to get the job done. Well, you know, WWF at this point was catching up. You know, we had momentum in, in WCW with Nitro at that point. Or at this point, I should say, in 1997, and WWF was in the kind of okay. Let's let's figure out how to do what they do, meaning Nitro, only do it better. And this was the early stages of that. You know, Vince McMahon coming out as the authority figure in in WWF and coming out from behind the "I'm just an announcer" character. Um, Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, challenging the authority figure, which is something that was going on in WCW. Uh, previous to to seeing it here, this is where WWF probably and I don't know I wasn't there at the time and and I don't talk about it with people you know Bruce and I will you know talk about it a little bit from time to time but this is probably the point where you know everybody said okay we've got to change the way we present our product and this was the early stages of it clearly by the middle of ninety eight end of ninety eight most. You know, Without doubt, in '99 they had perfected the art, and and regained their position. Their they meaning WWF. So, this was this was the early stages of the evolution of WWF programming, that was reacting to the success of Nitro and the way we were presenting the product. We should mention that uh, Bret Hart wins by submission, and the Sharpshooter refuses to release the hold. So that brings down Shawn Michaels. He's looking for any excuse to beat up on Bret Hart. Uh, Triple H wants to have nothing to do with that. He's coming to rescue his old pal. Now they're double teaming Brett, but well, Owen has something to say about that. So he's involved in the mix and Owen doesn't want to come down by himself. So he's bringing the injured bulldog who's limping along, having dropped the European title to Sean just two days prior, but we need to even it out. So here's another member of DX, Rick rude. What's pandemonium in the ring right now, but we're not done. Here comes Jim, the anvil Nightheart. Advantage Heart Foundation. What's interesting is if you, as you're looking at Rick Rude there firing punches in the corner on Bret Hart, I'm relatively certain that that was a serious breach of his <laughs> Lloyd's of London, London policy. Yeah. Which I mean, I mean, I'm not. It's it's only interesting to me because that was such a big issue. It went on to become a big issue between Rick and I and WCW. And had something gone wrong in that ring uh, at that moment, the the implications would have been really, really um, interesting to say the least. So it's absolute pandemonium in the ring. The Undertaker comes in, double choke slam on both Sean and Brett, and we're off the air. Of course, uh, they would be treated inside the building to a three-way at that point with the undertaker, Bret Hart, and Shawn Michaels. We should mention what you guys programmed this with, I guess, before we do that, what'd you think? You hadn't seen this show ever, right? What'd you think? I, I thought it was a great show. I mean, the, obviously the, the pivot point, and it's easy to say this in hindsight, because we know now what the stone cold, Steve Austin, Vince McMahon story became and how much it changed the industry and how much it elevated stone cold, Steve Austin to an amazing career. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he is an icon as a result in part, in no small part to this storyline and this angle. Uh, but the show was laid out very, very well. They finished hot. Um, they did some, they did some very innovative things for that time, and I, I, I enjoyed watching it. it. Went by fast. Here's what you counter-programmed it with: Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Silver King. 
a, a young rookie upstart named Bill Goldberg over Hugh Morris. Disco Inferno would beat Alex Wright to win the television title. Hector Garza would sneak a win over Scott Hall. Ciclope, Juventud Guerrero, Lismark Jr., and Ultimo Dragon would defeat Laparca, Psychosis, and Volano 4 and 5. The Faces of Fear, believe it or not, would beat the Steiner brothers. Randy Savage picked up a win over Dancing Stevie Richards. Booker T would defeat Conan and Scott Norton by DQ in a two on one handicap match. And your main event of Nitro? Kurt Henning and Jeff Jarrett for the United States Championship. Well, we certainly didn't burn up too much top talent, did we? <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable when you think about when you look at those on paper, you're like, oh, the WBF won that night for sure. No, they didn't. If that doesn't tell you the tale and the story of momentum in wrestling and that it can be real, where even if the content of the show, you might say, oh, the WBF had a better show. Uh, and they did have a better show. There's no question. They did have a better show. But as you pointed out, the momentum was decidedly in the, the WCW Nitro category. And you're right, man. This is a perfect illustration of that. Well, listen, this was fun. We haven't done this in a while. I enjoyed when we did it a few weeks ago or a few months ago, whenever it was, we sat down and watched the show as we sort of built towards a, a pay-per-view for the WWF. And it was sort of a, a fun little whodunit surprise at the end where the cane mask is revealed and it's actually, uh, the undertaker underneath. It was fun to watch that show with you. So I wanted to do it again here and this was no exception, but next week is probably our most anticipated show. In a long, long time. And uh, I know you're not looking forward to it. We're calling it Total Nonstop Bischoff. It's going to be all about Eric's time in TNA. Of course, that's going to cover, uh, well, a considerable amount of time. So we'll probably just be hitting some of the high points. But I'm looking forward to this. Is there anything that you're nervous about, anxious about, not looking forward to? Anything you want me to steer clear of? No, I don't give a fuck. I love that about you. <laughs> I feared nothing. Well, let's look forward to it, boys and girls. Uh, it didn't end well. And uh, we'll talk about how it came together, what some of the high points were, what some of the low points were. And Eric is uh, obviously in a different place now. So I think you might be ready to name some names and tell some stories. Fair to say? Could be. You'll have to tune in and find out. Tune in next week and every week, every Monday, right here at 6 a.m., only on Westwood One. 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Oh, and hey, don't forget the Arn Show tomorrow, Westwood One. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.